Okay, hi. Good day. Good Monday to you. What a great, great day it is. I love the smell of podcasts in the morning. It's John Baker here, the real John Baker. The podcast is too lazy to write unless you, uh, well, I guess you got that from the song at the beginning and the graphic that you looked at when you downloaded the podcast, etc., etc. I am so excited about this one. Um, this uh, was an interview I did a couple days ago um, with a friend. He called me a friend. So I did this interview with uh, my friend, uh, percussionist, drummer, programmer, Doug Yowell, um, who is right now on tour with Suzanne Vega. Um, they are doing um, a, a, a tour. They've been doing it for a little bit where they play Solitude Standing and uh, her album 99.9 Degrees back to back with an intermission in between. They, they play the albums uh, in their entirety. And uh, I first met Doug, I first saw Doug, I should say. It was uh, October 30th, maybe three years ago. He uh, was drumming with uh, Joe Jackson along with Teddy Kumpel on guitar and Graham Maybe, Graham Maybe on bass. And uh, it was the four of them. And then uh, that was in October. About seven or eight months later, Joe played uh, Blues Fest in Ottawa, and I was backstage. I got to spend the day driving Joe around, and I had the opportunity to just say hello briefly to Doug and uh, to Teddy. And... Um, and then I had a nice conversation with Doug last year when they were coming to play Wolf Trap in, in uh, Vienna, Virginia. And uh, we just, we weren't able to hook up. But then I, I emailed him about doing my podcast and he obliged and uh, we FaceTimed. He sat in his car in New York City. Uh, we talked for about 45 minutes. Um, just a great guy. And that really comes across in his words, uh, in the interview, he he really is just one of the nicest people I've met, and you're going to hear that. And um, you can also you know check him out on his website dougyowell.com y o w e l l Doug. I don't think I need to spell Doug. Um, <laughs> and we covered a lot of topics, a lot of things we went over, and uh, you're going to hear all of all of them. You're going to hear all of them. You're going to hear all of them. <laughs> you're going to hear all of them, and. Uh, You'll just understand, I think, at the end of this uh, interview, what a what a great guy is. Of course, we talk about Joe. Uh, I would not be a a good Joe Jackson fan if I didn't, you know, hone in on that for a little bit. But we talk about a whole bunch of other stuff, and you're really going to enjoy it. So, uh, here it is: an interview I did with Doug Yowell from his car in New York City. He was parked, so you know, no need to worry about tickets or anything. And I hope you enjoy listening to it as much as I enjoyed uh, chatting with him. Enjoy. Hey Doug, how are you? How are you, John? I'm I'm great. Are you in your you're in your car? I see. Yeah. So, but now's a good time. Yeah. Oh, excellent. Well, it's great to see you. I've actually just started recording. I figured I'd just get going right off the top and and uh, just get right into the chat with you and see how everything is. Fantastic. Now, is this a video? Uh, is it is it released on video or just audio? No, it's just audio. It's uh, oh. my, my podcast that I'm trying to get off the ground called Too Lazy to Write because I'm too lazy to write anything down. I figured I'd just talk to people. But I did write some stuff down. <laughs> Excellent. Well, that's great. Um, what did I, I wanted to uh, start. You're, so right now you are touring with Suzanne Vega. Is that right? Yeah, I'm going to leave with Suzanne Vega on uh, – Friday to start a couple of weeks with her 
and we're continuing the uh, anniversary tour of two records back to back solitude standing and 99.9 degrees fahrenheit and we played both records in the order that they were recorded with a 15 minute intermission in between the two records and it's it's really amazing so you clearly aren't out there on solitude standing for the first song uh which I, is the first track is actually tom's Diner exactly right so yeah. you're not there well, we're there, but we don't play. Okay. We're in position. Um, so I, I want to start. I have one question for you. When I, when I was um, a kid, a young, a young child, when I wore a younger man's clothes, <laughs> um, my brother bought the Simon and Garfunkel album, Concert in Central Park. Yes. And I think at the end of 50 Ways to Leave Your Lover, Paul Simon says, Stevie Gadd on drums. That's right. What does that mean to you? Well... It means a lot because when I first heard that record, um, the original recording, I was immediately a fan. I was, I think, seven years old, and I was completely enamored with Steve Gadd. I, I'd been playing since I was three, and when that happened, it was like pure direction of where I wanted to go and how I wanted to kind of get to see how I could make music feel that way if I could. And um, I took that recording to a drum lesson. And my teacher said, well, work on it for the week and see how it goes and we'll meet again next Friday. And we did, and I'm left-handed, so, but I play righty and I naturally put the left hand on the hi-hat. And it seemed to be the right sound, you know? And at that point we didn't have internet or videos or things to be able to watch and see what he was doing. And my teacher said, you know, I think you're on to something. And I think Paul Simon is on Saturday Night Live tomorrow night. And we'll see if, you know, if it's him and, and if that's the way he's playing the group. And when I saw Steve play, it was unmistakably him. You couldn't get it to sound or feel that great. And that set me on a path that's never stopped. And um, I got a chance to hang out with Steve Gadd a couple of weeks ago on a recording session. And I, I was relating that story to him. And we've become friends, you know, mm -hmm. which is really, really surreal and extraordinary because he's been such a giant influence on my on my playing. And um, and then you meet him as a person and you see that he's as great a human being as he is a drummer. And those two things are are not mutually exclusive. They are absolutely one and the same. You know, you can hear the support and the kindness in his playing. It's the same you'd feel from him as a human being. He's just extraordinary. But that started quite a quest of understanding what it was to be a session drummer, what it was uh, to want to explore as many styles of music as I could, to be able to work with as many different kinds of genres and artists and textures and, and how supportive he was of the lyric, the vocal, the entire arc of the story, everything. So for me, that was very, very pivotal. So he and, wasn't, sorry, he just wasn't a, a uh, influence to you. He was, it, it sounds like he was more than that. Is that at all possible? Yeah, absolutely. And as we become friends, he's really such a, I'd say a mentor in so many ways. You know, he's been very supportive of my own playing and just incredibly kind. And um, you mentioned the, concert in Central Park my sisters took me I think I was 14 and um, we went slightly late mm -hmm. because the crowd was so enormous 
and we snuck in from the side and I was right at the front wall. Wow. Watching the show. So I, I always think if I could get hold of that footage, could I slow it down frame by frame and see if I could find myself in the crowd. But I was I, I used to go see Steve Gadd live all the time. Wow. Just to just to be in the presence of that energy and and command and focus and um yeah, it was it was always incredible to me to to watch him play. It still is. I mean, still, he just got better as he went on. And um, so he's clearly, as as we just mentioned, one of your uh, influences and your a mentor. Is there anybody yeah. else in that drumming community that um, that you look to? Yes, I I started studying with a really legendary jazz drummer named Peter Erskine when I was sixteen. And I had already had lots of teachers, and and Peter had just come out of Weather Report, and he was in a jazz group called Steps Ahead, and he's he's also just he's an extraordinary genius, and uh, he's never stopped evolving. You listen to the records now, and you just can't believe how far he's come along the way. And he was always brilliant. I mean, at a young age, he was already a star. So he was probably 29 at the time. And he was living in New York and I used to go every week and mm. take lessons with him. And that really progressed into something really insightful to me because he didn't just have me as a student. He would take me to recording sessions to watch how that took place and, and what that was like with all those musicians and reading all those charts. And he would take me to sound checks, gigs, everything. So I was spending time around all these musical heroes of mine. In, and here he was really kind of taking me under his wing. And we've stayed very close over the years. But, I mean, in terms of influences, there's been so many right. influences. And not always drummers. Oh, really? Yeah, not always drummers. I was always really uh, knocked out by different kinds of players. I, I think my first, the first record I really fell in love with when I was three was... Uh, was a, a jazz record by Hubert Laws, the okay. jazz flautist, who's, it sounds like a gospel singer singing through flute. Okay. And, um, and my dad was a horn player. So that really was a, was a good influence for me. Jazz was a great influence. And then I fell in love with players like David Sanborn, Michael Brecker. And, um, over the years, I think I've been influenced by people who, can create tremendous atmosphere within their instrument. People like Jerry Leonard, who plays with Suzanne, guitar player. And he had a, a great impact at the later part of David Bowie's career as his musical director and guitar player. And uh, Duncan Sheik was always a great influence to me. Um, there's been so many. Will Lee, you know, the bass player, has been not only a great mentor, but one of my closest friends. and. To work with people who I idolized as a kid was was also in that same feeling of it being surreal. I grew up listening to Will and Steve Gadd all the time, mm -hmm. and I thought when I was old enough to play with players of that caliber, I would hope that it would be people who had that same drive or that same uh, experience. I never imagined it would be Willie himself. Right. So, that really has had a great impact on my approach. It's funny because a lot of these people who you're, the names you're mentioning are people I used to see all the time on Letterman as part of oh, either sure. his band or they would come in to, to fill in 
uh, when somebody was was away. I yeah. remember that's where I think I first saw David Sanborn play. Yes. And then I, I think I had a cassette of him with, I remember Al Jarreau saying on it. It was, it was a great, I forget the name of this. I kind of find, I'm going to dig it up later. Okay. Um, but, uh, so you mentioned your father was a horn player. And yeah. so do you come from a musical family? Yes. Uh, my dad's uncle, I think was a, a clarinet player, um, in the New York Philharmonic. And my dad was a jazz musician in the fifties and, um, he, he played baritone, tenor, alto, soprano, flute, clarinet. He was, he was really pretty diverse, but an extraordinary musician. And he had this uh, famous apartment below street level on 135th and Broadway that he shared with these other two famous uh, musicians of their time. And he was great friends with Charlie Parker and Zoot Sims and Jerry Mulligan, and they used to come over and jam wow. at the place. So he had great musical experience. But of course, you know, there was not really any money in jazz, even for guys like Charlie Parker. I think it was very difficult. If you go to the, to, to Kansas City, they have a, a jazz museum there. And my dad used to tell me that, yeah, Charlie Parker would sometimes, you know, get paid $750 to do the entire record. Really? I don't even know if residuals were involved at that point. And sure enough, there were the contracts, $750 to do these records. So he passed that influence down to all of us there were six of us and everybody was into a different style of music and nobody was really into jazz and 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 me being the last of six somehow that was my greatest love and it kind of came full circle for him so i used to drag him to all the jazz stuff that i was getting to go on with peter erskine it was my way of saying to my dad this is payback for all the love you put into to me wanting to pursue music and now I got to take him to hang out with Michael Brecker and all these folks and I think for him it was just thrill. And your your parents are both still with us? No, my mom passed in 91 and my dad in 2011. Oh. But my dad did get to see me finally, you know, get into touring and he used to come and see me with Suzanne all the time. Wow. He loved it. That's unbelievable. Um, now when I, what a, what a gift he gave you really. That's yeah, crazy. in many ways. Well, I think his greatest gift, my father had this incredible childlike imagination. Whatever he got into, he did with every ounce of his spirit, and he went far beyond what, what you would think someone without any experience in the field could do. He, he made teeth for a living. He oh. made caps and bridges. and So he worked with something called the lost wax process. And because of that, he started getting into jewelry and he made miniature instruments to scale and they were amazing. I mean, at one point, Neiman Marcus carried the line. He was, he was just someone who could push the imagination as far as you could imagine. You could take something and, um, and he would manifest it into reality. And to me, that seemed completely normal because it's all I ever knew. And uh, it wasn't until you know, I was old enough and, and living on my own that I realized what an extraordinary thing he passed to me. And the last time I saw him, um, we spoke about it a lot. I I was visiting him in Florida where he lived and, and I wanted him to know how much I loved him and adored him and how much I appreciated everything he ever did for me and how much he supported me and how much he taught me imagination without ever having to sit down and 
speak the words. He did it by example and how grateful I was. I'm so happy we had that conversation. That's unbelievable. What a what an amazing man he sounds like. Yeah. I, I'm going to change gears completely now. Sure. Because um, when, when I first met you briefly, it was backstage in Ottawa after uh, Joe Jackson had performed. Yes. And I'd been, a since I was probably 9 or 10 years old, a huge fan of, of Joe's music. And when you uh, met up with him to go on this tour, were you aware of the um, fandom that surrounded him or? No. In fact, you know, it was my older brother who turned me on to his music. Um, I think it was uh, around the time that Stepping Out came out. And of course, the video was in such giant rotation on MTV. And I did immediately fall in love with his approach to music and everything about him just seemed so unique to me. And I was, I was, of course, a fan of his, but not to the point where I knew all of his records. And um, I had met him once backstage in Berlin. He came to a show. I was performing with Suzanne Vega. And he came another time in New York. And uh, we would briefly say hello. And it was, I was grateful to meet him. But I didn't really know the depth of his music until we started rehearsing for the tours. And I had to learn, you know, as many songs as we did. And it was quite a lot. You know, anytime you get into working with an artist at that depth, you really see the entire arc of their musical experience, their career. And the more time I spent with Joe, the more I could understand where these influences were coming from. And that's also very unique. I'm always fascinated by that. That helps me with more insight as to how adventurous they are or maybe where this could possibly lead to. So once I became very involved in the amount of material, I really was, the, you know, maybe the biggest fan I could imagine ever being. Mm -hmm. And I still feel that way. I, you know, any of the new things that he's writing now, I just, I think he's, he's always at the top of his game. And the other thing that struck me with Joe, which was unique, because I didn't know the records in sequence and I didn't know which songs were from which records, I was learning a lot of the new material and I was learning a lot of the history of Joe. But um, I was learning these things as MP3s. Okay. So I wasn't tracing them back to which record at that point. I was just having to immerse myself in Joe's music. And what I found really extraordinary about Joe was that I actually couldn't tell you if it was new material or older material. Mm -hmm. And for me, that really spoke to how focused he's always been as an artist someone who's always followed his own path and for that reason it's never music that is locked into an era you know it doesn't sound like oh this was joe in the 80s or this was joe in the 70s it's just joe jackson so when i hear even the newer things that he's creating it sounds like it's coming from all parts of his career which tells me how he really did develop his own sound and style, and it's always been. It's never been anything other than you getting a view into the reflection of what inspires him. Interesting. I think that's so unique. And you did something, well, the, the drumming on Real Men is not of this world, I think. <laughs> like, what you did, because I think where you drum, it's originally like a keyboard riff on the on the album 
it may be i you know i feel grateful to joe because he always encourages us to bring our personality in a way into the music and and he encourages that because that could take the music to new places too mm -hmm. the recording is the document of what was done and then what happens live can be another experience okay. and for me i mean he's allowed me so much latitude and so much of me to kind of interpret what it is and if he didn't like something of course he would tell me but um i find that relationship to be both filled with respect for what he's created and then trust for what we can do with it but make no mistake when joe works on new material and sends it to me i can't believe that it's not a group of musicians that have recorded this in the studio even his drum programming you would swear he called a session player in to do it it's and i've asked him on many occasions joe did you record this or did you program this and he laughs because you know it's his programming is just like nothing else i've ever heard so it's you, just it's it's like it's like a drummer who spent their whole life playing and now understands what that is to program he does it from that degree and it's it's astounding unbelievable yeah and you you guys seem to have i've seen the show um three times now actually and i'm going to see it again in harrisburg in july great um and the four of you seem to have a really great relationship uh, on stage. Yeah, we do. We do on stage and off stage. I, I never had a chance to play with Graham, maybe, and that's a question that I would be asked all the time as a drummer, friends or musicians or whatever. Have you ever played with Graham, maybe? And all those years, nothing. And then, it just so happened that an artist called me for a session, and, and who was the bass player, Graham, maybe. I was so excited to meet him. It was in Brooklyn. I knew of this incredible coffee place around the corner. So they had set up, uh, we set up the instruments and they were miking the drums and we had time. I said, come on, let's go have a cup of coffee. And we did, we just hit it off. And he said, you know, Joe's thinking about putting a New York band together and I think you'd be perfect. And I, I couldn't imagine anything greater. And oh. um, I was on tour with Sharon Core of the Coors in Australia and New Zealand with uh, America and um, I got this call from Joe's office that they, Joe would like me to come in and play. And I was so excited. I think I set the alarm for 3.30 a.m. and called <laughs> them at four because I had to match New York time. Yeah, It worked out perfectly when they wanted me to come. I had five days home to work on the material and um, spoke to Joe a bunch and then went in and played and we just hit it off. It was just the chemistry. It's, it's hard to describe otherwise, but also I think my excitement and my preparation really spoke to how much I was in love with this music and I couldn't help but play it with every ounce of joy. And then of course we get into touring and rehearsing and you know, both Teddy Kumpel and, uh, and Graham are two of my closest friends. Joe and I can speak all the time and it doesn't have to be about music. I just, I learned so much from someone like him. He's so brilliant. When I've seen him a number of times, and uh, one time I was hanging out backstage to to hopefully meet him, and he he'd left early. But I met uh, Sue Hajopoulos. Oh right. Have you have you done anything with her? Do you know her? No, no, I haven't. And I'm I'm a fan of hers, of course, and I I love what she's brought to that music. And we do speak sometimes on Facebook. Okay. Know, on, on social media, we'll speak back and forth, and 
she seems to be really encouraging and championing what we're doing and and um it's so nice to hear from people i've had a chance to meet you know some of the other drummers that have toured with joe and the other musicians and they're so supportive and so everybody take what joe chooses as joe's choice it's never about whether a musician is chosen because it's better than the previous musicians never about that with joe it's about him having a concept and going after what's the best way to complete that so even doing the tour that i did with joe we had no idea how long we would be asked to play with joe the hope is that we'd be able to play with him forever mm -hmm. i would play with joe for the, for the rest of time if he asked I, that's how much i enjoy working with him but we also have the appreciation that it's up to joe it's his concept and no matter what time I've spent with Joe, I can always feel grateful for being a part of his music and a part of his career. That's something you can't take away from the history of his career. And and already I'm I'm grateful for that. So the idea that we're going to continue working together, it's just as exciting as you can imagine. That's fantastic. I, I love hearing that because it reconfirms my my reason for loving his music that, that he... Yeah. I, and I did. I got to spend some time with him that day in Ottawa, and uh, it was really it was like a dream come true for me. That's so great. Um, and he was he was just such a gentleman. And I I mean you 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 read things online and whatnot about people, and and he was the complete opposite of anything I had read about his demeanor. I'll say he was just wonderful. Well, you know, it's I think I think people misunderstand certain things when it comes to artists especially in joe's case he's such a kind human being he really is mm -hmm. so kind and i think with joe he has a certain privacy to him yeah well and i think he prepares so intensely for the tours and even when we're on tour he prepares by doing vocal exercises long before we go on stage he is thinking about doing sound check at a, at a certain time early enough so that we can have dinner shortly after and digest and feel like we're not going out on stage completely weighed down. We've had time to refocus and there's plenty of time before the show. And, um, and I think when he's put all that energy out on stage, it's kind of like he's given it all. Mm -hmm. And after the show, sometimes I think he'd like to just, you know, go back to the bus or, or, or be prepared for, for the next thing that he's going to do and take that time to relax and, and enjoy what just happened. And uh, he told me about how to make a Sazerac. Oh, he is. <laughs> he's a master at Sazerac and uh, martinis, a real master. You can look forward to that after a show for sure. Well, I still have a bottle of Sazerac upstairs that I bought shortly after I met him. And, you know, if I bring it to Harrisburg, maybe I can schmooze my way backstage. <laughs> I, I think you just have to tell me you're coming and then I can, I can make it happen. And if you, if, I'm sure that would be a beautiful gesture if you gave him a bottle of Sazerac. I think he would really appreciate that. I want to, uh, again, I'm going to change gears. I want to talk about you because you're, you're doing this for me and I appreciate it. What um, are the Jubadors? The Jubadors, that's that's sort of um, a comedy band uh -huh. that we have. And uh, there are really great artists involved. There's some really, really great people. There's uh, Ari Hest, of course, who's an amazing singer-songwriter. I've been recording and working with Ari for, since 2008. 
uh, Julian Villard, who really is the leader and and such a great comedian and musician at the same time. He's I would say he's really the the person who founded it and really understands how far to take the humor and how to approach the entire thing. It's it's such a great concept. So it's a lot of great musicians and sometimes we have some incredible guests who come along and play with us. And we don't get to do it often because everybody has their different touring schedules and and uh, when we do get to do it, it's so much fun to do. And is it just is it club dates? Is it in and around New York? It's in and around New York. Uh, there's been a couple things outside of New York, and sometimes we'll get asked to do things in places, and it just depends on the logistics. But we had these very high-end professional baseball jerseys made up, and um, it's it's uh, of course white and these beautiful blue satin letters on the front that say the Jubadors. And on the back, it has all our fictitious names. Okay, what's your what's your fictitious name? Well, well, we had to take the first initial of our uh, first name and the first initial of our last name. So we, I turned. We all have our choice. So I took Doug Yoel and I made it Dreidel Ubinowitz. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, why not? I love it. You know, yeah. So we all have these crazy, crazy names. And they're song parodies or they're original? They're song parodies. We take we take songs from the eighties traditionally. You okay. know, like Lionel Richie Hello becomes Shalom. <laughs> so it's it's very it's very funny how they go about this. And they're they're just a, it's a great bunch of friends. And we do it purely for the fun of doing it. Yeah. And you know, we've done some bigger shows. We we sold out the Highline Ballroom in New York when we did it. And um we would do it around Christmas time and, and uh, Julian came up with the concept instead of the last waltz, he called it the last schmaltz <laughs> and we would do these shows, you know, and we'd have fantastic people come and sing with us. Yeah. So it was, it's a lot of fun. That's sort of a, that's our comedy project, you know, that we get to do just as a, is that a bit of like a stress reliever for you? You know, I can't even think of music as stressful. I can't believe the adventure I get to live on a daily basis. None of this could be considered stress. They're really, there's nothing stressful about it. Even if I get called in to do sessions where I've never heard the music before and I'm looking at the music, it's it's such a beautiful experience to have. If it's instantaneous, then you're gravitating toward the beauty of what it is in that moment. If it's something well rehearsed, then you go out there with a with a different preparation and it's it's all really incredibly beautiful. Are you I can't think of it as stressful. Are you um always influenced by those that influenced you or does that stop at some point i think i think i find that um as i'm creating things now and i'm using a lot of different technology now that sometimes the influences that have been there are probably embedded someplace but then i find myself going down these paths as of late where it's kind of taking me on the adventure rather than me trying to direct something. It's kind of opening up in front of me and what unfolds is very unique. And I never consider anything I do as something that comes from me. We're all influenced by many things, you know, uh, for instance, somebody asked me in a radio interview recently, you know, uh, they were explaining that they've had a, great look into the different things that I've, I've done and accomplished and 
and when they speak to other musicians or artists, they say that I've developed a sound or style. And I can only reiterate to her that my sound would be the sound of every person that's ever supported me, loved me, influenced me, encouraged me, um, whether that was teachers, family, friends, fans, musicians. You know, when you really think about what it takes all along the way, it takes everything, everybody, to make that happen. If it takes, you know, even the companies that provide me with the very things that, that I get to explore sound with, they're a part of my playing or mm -hmm. part of my sound. And I always feel like we have this connection to the universe. We're, we're made from the same particle and dust that makes up everything. And I never consider myself the source. There's something far greater that allows us this conscious opportunity to do things. So when I think of that as ethereal as that sounds, if I'm taken in a direction as I'm composing new things or working on, on new areas of atmospheric exploration, I feel like it's a combination of things. I can't really take responsibility for it. I might be there as the conduit or the witness as much as, as you, you hear it coming out of me, I might just be the antenna and the signal path of something that we can't even understand. Well, you know, you talk about being the antenna and the signal path, and I, I don't know if you remember this, but last year uh, I had gotten in touch with you because you were playing at Wolf Trap close to my house, and uh, you said, give me a call, and I called you, and my son was with me, and uh, I had told you he just started playing uh, the bell kit, and you said, let me talk to him. So I put my son on, my 10-year-old son. He's 11 now. Yeah. And uh, you talked to him for about 10 minutes. And um, later that summer, we get a, a picture from the summer camp he's at where he's playing drums. He came home from camp. He bought a kit. And uh, tomorrow night, he's playing uh, a solo in his talent show. Oh, my God. And this is really because of a lot of what you said to him that day. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. That's he, so beautiful. I, I always feel like what a unique position to be in where not only do we get to go around the world, meet folks like yourself or your son, but we have this beautiful responsibility to pass whatever knowledge or inspiration we have on to the next generation and to anyone really. It doesn't it can be it doesn't have to be someone younger, it could be somebody older. It really doesn't matter. It's the idea that it's about sharing and it's about um, that excitement. I can only think back to what was going through my mind at 10 and what I was hoping it would be. And so if I can impart any kind of positive influence, of course, that's that's the greatest joy. Well, as my rabbi would say, you're a mensch, Doug. <laughs> <laughs> it happens all the time. It, it can happen. It happened recently with a flight attendant. I was coming back from London and she sort of saw the way I was dressed and asked if I was a musician. I said yes, and she asked what I was doing, and I just was coming back from a Suzanne Vega tour, and it turned out she was an enormous Suzanne Vega fan, and she was very, very kind, and she showed me a, a video of her son playing drums. And it was in the upstairs of a home, a beautiful home. It seemed like a lot of wood and some a lot of big windows around, and he had little earbuds in for, for an iPhone. Mm -hmm. And it struck me that it would be very, very bad for his hearing to be playing a loud instrument with those tiny little earbuds 
and I immediately gave her my information and asked when she'd be returning back to the States on another flight. And she was returning 10 days later. And I called up one of my endorsement companies, Vic Firth, who makes drumsticks and they make headphones. Yeah. And I purchased a pair of headphones and got his t-shirt size and got a bunch of stuff for him. And I had it sent to that hotel so that when she arrived, she had these things. And you know, what a, what a simple thing to do, but what a difference that could make. And we've stayed in touch yeah. and it certainly has helped him. And so in a very simple way here, I had this opportunity because I'm working with, you know, great artists and I do have these endorsements that I can turn this into something far greater than what I, I can do for myself. You know, it, it can extend in ways that, that I think is really important. And so I, I tend to be very into that path, you know, when it comes to helping kids or helping people achieve what they want on their instruments. And, and, and if I can do it because of the connections that I have, that's so beautiful. What a, what a nice thing to do. It really sounds like you do, like you, you love what you do. You love giving back to those who you meet. Um, and you're just a very kind person. Doug. <laughs> well, I think I'm surrounded by kindness and I think that's the greatest value and currency we have in the world. I, I really do. I think when you're in a pure state of compassion and gratefulness and you're operating to be at the highest level of what the best self you have to offer life to me at that point becomes such a, a beautiful flow that I can't think of things that I get into that would be in any way confrontational or, or go in the wrong direction because you know, there, there are things that happen to us now in life that change the way we communicate. For instance, we could text each other, and we might not be able to imply the intention mm -hmm. to be received in the way that it was written. And so, you know, if we look at it on a scale of where you could read it a certain way and it could come across that um, something I'm replying to seems like it upset me. When in fact, my reply is about how grateful I am. Mm -hmm. and, um, and I feel like if we just keep understanding that yes we've we've changed the way we communicate but our intention and how we express ourselves is so important that it, it should actually expand our ability to be compassionate and grateful so that we don't have those misunderstandings and if we do how much easier to just pick up the phone and talk about it yeah so i think kindness is is um i find it so important because it makes us so grateful after the shows with joe i would talk to any amount of people for any amount of time or any any tour that i'm on yeah that's a chance for us to connect and how lucky am i not only to be in the position but then to be in front of this incredible audience that does nothing but pour their love and affection and kindness toward the stage and of course that comes back out through the music yeah and after the show when people want to chat or, or take a photo or ask questions of course, absolutely. Yeah. That's, you know, you accept that as part of the, the beauty of what the journey is. It's sort of like, the I, don't, I don't have like, I don't have any kind of ego towards what I do. I'm in full support of the artist. When I'm out there with Joe, it's about Joe 24 seven. Yeah. 
His name is on the marquee. I'm just the lucky guy who got chosen to play drums with him, you know, ultimately. Yeah. And I'll do everything in my power to make sure I'm the umpteenth prepared and there for him with absolute focus and concentration every step of the way. Well, it seems like everybody you've played with has been very lucky to have you as part of that ensemble, that group, that collaborative, what it, collective rather. Um, and uh, and I mean, I'm I'm lucky that you <laughs> replied to my email and said you would do this. Anytime. I'm, I'm grateful. Anytime. I'm good news. You know, sorry. I, I was just going to end that portion by saying, I'm a great believer in unity. You know, if we were, if, if you and I were on a recording session together and there was a, a, a third musician and maybe let's say they didn't read as well or it took them a little bit more time to get up to speed to what we were doing or we felt they didn't have the same experience and we were somehow further along in our evolution of playing. There's never a time to feel like something is greater and something is less than in that moment the unifying factor is that we're together and we have to make that work so we all have to be equal and we have to consider each other as equals and we have to encourage each other as equals and we have to sort of illuminate the best within one another that is what makes music sound great if we operate on a basis where we're looking out for our own performance and I deliver the best drum take I can and whatever else happens after that, that's on you guys. That really does not bode well for the end result. But when you put those factors together and you can bring out the amplify the best in one another, that's a sound too. Because if we if we operate on the basis of compassion and love and and unity in that way, that's a vibration. Music is a vibration. If you put those two together, imagine the sound you have at the end of that. Yeah. You did you study philosophy at all? Yes. <laughs> uh, yes. <laughs> I've been um, following and fascinated by Buddhism since I was probably eighteen, uh -huh. and uh, it's been definitely a big part of my life, uh, especially working with Duncan Sheik, who's a Nietzschean. Buddhist and Suzanne Vega, Nietzschean Buddhist, and Jerry Leonard, also Buddhist. And the philosophy is beautiful. I don't feel myself connected to a single thing or, or a religion in particular, but I do think that the idea that, that we do emit energy, whether it's emotional, electrical, however we want to see it, we do admit that and with that comes responsibility and it also is very related to the kinds of things that happen to us in life mm -hmm. and so yes i i do follow quite a bit i'm i'm always fascinated by consciousness and uh and by how quantum theory is now relating to energy in that same way and i do i do research as many things as i can i'm not one for for um, you know, going to see films about you know fictional things. I love documentaries on mm -hmm. reality. I love watching people take something that inspired them and, and and catapulted them into an area that they would have never imagined. I think a great example, if you ever follow on Netflix, 
Chef's Table. Okay. Chef's Table is a fascinating series about people who notoriously went down a path that just was not fulfilling. And within that journey, they found something within themselves that brought them to a, a closer point in the natural things around them. The elements that were already there need to be applied. And then, example. You know what? I think um, I might have to wrap it up there. I'm having trouble with the audio right now. Are you? Do you want to try me back? Or? No, I'm actually going to. I th honestly, I think we have covered everything. I, I do have one more question, though. Yes. So, Doug, you're the scenario is you're a guest on a talk show. Yes. And the band has to play you out to a song. What song are they playing you out to? Oh my goodness. What song are they playing me out to? Yeah, you're, they just introduced you. You're walking across the stage. What's the band playing? Oh, my gosh. That's a hard one. Um, do you have something handy? No, I don't. I just, I just, it's the question I feel I want that to be like my signature question that I ask everybody. My, my, old, my friend I interviewed a few weeks ago told me he'd want to come out to Hey Bulldog by the Beatles. Wow. You know, there's so many things that come to mind. I mean, if it's, there's so many things. The first thing that came to mind was Hubert Law's Amazing Grace. That's the first oh. thing I ever heard. And um, it's really, really beautiful. I also think of Joe Jackson's uh, Blue Time, I think is incredible. Oh, yeah. There's so, there's so many things. My God, I could think about artists I, I've never worked with or dreamed of, you know. Yeah. So there's 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 quite a lot. <laughs> Doug, I can't thank you enough for this. Please, are you kidding? It's my pleasure. Thank this, you. This what, I get off on this more than anything in the world. I'm honestly, you, you can't, John. You can't imagine the stuff I've given away. <laughs> you can't. I have so much stuff. If you ever come and see my my storage and my my place, you just can't believe it. I was at a studio recently. And the and the owner was a drummer, and we're, we're good friends. And he was like, "Man, I'm I'm I've been looking for this Yamaha Maple custom four, uh, 16 inch floor tom. I can't find it online. I can't find it." So you know, they sent me an extra one. I've never used it. It's brand new. <laughs> I'll give it to you. I mean, the guy would not take the drum. It it went all the way up until I went to his studio. I was recording there, and I brought the drum in a case. It had never been played. It was absolutely pristine. Wow. And he had a hard time accepting it. And then after I gave it to him, he came down a couple hours later. He said, I can't accept it. I said, I said, you're taking the drum. It's yeah. yours. Well, what do I need to do in return? He asked. I said, enjoy it. He said, well, can I, you know, do you, are you looking for something in particular? Snare drums? I said, look, let's deal with that later. For now, just enjoy the drum. I, I, it gives me so much joy to just spread what I have. I'm, I've been given so much gear, John. Yeah. I give away everything from drums to headphones to microphones you name it if if it's if it can be used by somebody else and it serves me and it was given to me to me you pass that along yeah you know you could put all that stuff on ebay and sell it but to me that's the wrong energy yeah it was given to me i'm supposed to in the same spirit turn that over to somebody who would be just as grateful okay i know it was a bit of an abrupt ending but uh after that you might find this hard to believe if you've listened to any of my other interviews the quality started to get a little funky, and uh, he had to go. I had to wrap it up. 
and uh, I actually had to get uh, my daughter, I think. Yeah, we had, I had my banjo lesson. So, uh, But that's where Doug and I ended the interview. And uh, if all goes well, I'm going to see him uh, soon and uh, maintain this, this uh, relationship, this friendship. Super guy, as, as you could hear. Hopefully, in the next couple of days, um, I'm going to be doing another interview. And I might go back-to-back interviews on the podcast. So again... Uh, I want to thank Doug Yowell for that interview. You can check him out on uh, his website, Doug Yowell, Y-O-W-E-L-L, dot com. And uh, I just want to make sure, yeah, Y-O-W-E-L-L, dot com. And it lists his tour dates. Uh, a nicer guy you'll never meet. And um, next time, I got another surprise. I hope it works out. Oh, I really hope the next one works out, too. Uh, So thanks for listening. Too Lazy to Write is the podcast. The number two, the word lazy, the number two, the word write.com. You can message me on that, uh, on Twitter, at The Real John Baker, on Facebook, John Baker. And and that's it for another week. Thank you for listening, and uh, I hope this interview that you just listened to puts you in a great mood, and you could just take some of the lessons of, uh, of what Doug was talking about, about kindness and about giving back and uh, use them in your life. So, thanks so much. Take care. Talk soon. Bye-bye. Too lazy to write. We're